four, three, two, and one. Welcome back, everyone. It's been a long time since we've done one of these, but as I mentioned, the shift method is back in action. We got content, we got educational videos, and of course, we're bringing the podcast back. And you know, this is one that I actually had planned. Apologies to my man here. We tried to do it a few times, but my life got hectic and we had to cancel. So I'm very, very excited to have with me on the podcast one of my former students, one of my former coworkers, Austin Lee. Go ahead and introduce yourself to the people. Yeah. So, like you said, my name is Austin. Um, I'm a senior majoring in kinesiology here at Purdue, and I'm also working on a minor in nutrition. Um, I've been training with um, the Co-Rec or Purdue Recwell since January 2019. And right now I am currently working at Park West Fitness in West Lafayette as well, doing personal training. So that's where you can find me. Absolutely. And what you guys are going to find out is that Austin is an extremely humble, soft-spoken, but of course, knowledgeable person. He forgot to mention his most important credential in the industry is that he is absolutely yoked like the dude is jack so he'll plug his instagram later you can see the guy he makes really really good content really good if you're looking to especially if you're a new trainer and you're looking for form in terms of how do i accomplish these lifts what is it supposed to look like and the main topic we're going to talk about today which is hypertrophy training and a little bit of nutrition that's kind of austin's specialty here so we're going to talk all things hypertrophy today so austin just kind of to kick off the conversation right a lot of people hear that term thrown around, you know, hypertrophy, toning, muscle building. Let's just kind of get our definitions down pat, right? So can you just kind of tell everyone what exactly is hypertrophy? Yeah, so basically when it comes to muscle hypertrophy, um, there's essentially, there's two types of hypertrophy of the muscle. We have uh, myofibrillar, fibrillar, as well as sarcoplasmic. And then what we'll focus on today is um, myofibrillar, just because that is um, the actual growing of the muscle cell. Sarcoplasmic hypertrophy refers to um, ex expansion of the sarcoplasm, which is basically the cytoplasm of a muscle cell. But um, that can be another topic on its own. Absolutely. So when, it, when a client comes to me and says, um, obviously, if they want to build muscle, that falls under muscle hypertrophy. Um, if they want to say they're trying to get toned, um, if they're trying to lose body fat, gain muscle at the same time, kind of do a recomposition, that's also muscle hypertrophy. So there's a lot of different ways people can word it. Um, and it all just falls under the same, same umbrella. Absolutely. Yeah. Very rarely will people be like, yeah, my goal is hypertrophy training. A lot of people don't know what that term means. So yeah, the general sense is enlarging or building of the skeletal muscle, right? That's kind of the goal that we're training here. Um, when we're talking about trying to build muscle mass, I know that there's a lot of training considerations, right? And as we were talking off air um, before we started, this is a field of research that's changing quite rapidly. There's a lot more research going into it. People like, um, you know, Renaissance periodization. Um, there's a lot of different people that are going into this topic. So a lot of things to talk about. So from a programming standpoint, Austin, kind of thinking like, sets and reps that those kind of parameters what are we looking for when we're programming for hypertrophy specifically so in terms of uh, hypertrophy we are mostly going to focus on volume that's going to be like the number one for for growing muscle and um, as far as the equation for volume goes 
it's going to be your sets times your reps times your load. And all three of these variables can be manipulated to increase volume. Um, however, I would say that increasing sets is going to have the most impact on your volume just because um, like, if you just think about it, if you're doing two sets of 10 for bench press versus five sets of 10, it's going to be a substantial difference in your volume. As opposed to just increasing by five pounds and keeping sets and reps the same, right? Right. So if you don't like math out there, I'm sorry, this may not be the podcast for you. We're going to do some multiplication. No, I'm just kidding. But yes, so volume being one of those key components, of course, there are other important factors as well, which we'll get into, but volume being sets times reps times load. And then correct me if I'm wrong, but is, I know load is a variable you can change, but like you mentioned, sets being kind of like that, I guess you can call it a multiplier of your work. Do you ever just use volume as sets times reps, or do you also like to really include the weight component as well? So I would say you, you can do either or. You can do either or when it comes to that. Um, more so on like the load itself, I wouldn't say that it matters too much in regards to um, as long as you're taking the sets close to failure. And what that means is um, you're taking the set three to four reps away from failure starting there. And um, in terms of what's called the, the size principle, Henman's size principle, right? Um, it's, it's a part of exercise physiology. Basically what it says is that your smaller uh, motor units are gonna be recruited first, followed by your larger motor units belonging to the fast twitch fibers. And um, as, long as, as long as you take a set close to failure, what will happen is as you approach failure, those larger motor units will um, be recruited. So you can do that as well as um, if you're doing super heavy loads, let's say you're doing maybe like a three rep max, you're, those fast switch motor units are already gonna be recruited right away just because the load is very heavy. So they need that. However, like I said, if you, you can do lightweight and approach failure and still get that same effect just because of the size principle. Absolutely. And this is something that me and you have posted about and talked about quite often, right? Which is because it's a cool way to go about programming hypertrophy, especially when the pandemic happened. It was for those who are trying to, you know, at least maintain their gains or trying to build on their gains, but they maybe didn't have access to gym equipment. Volume is kind of a key component, but like Austin mentioned, training to or near failure with a good portion of your exercises right now what does that mean for sets and reps that means that your reps don't have to be in that stereotypical eight to 12 rep range right the reason why that's ideal could be ideal from a time perspective right so if i do three to five sets eight to 12 reps one to two minute rest period for an hour training session that might make the most sense right it might be an efficient way of training but if you don't have access to that for example you don't have heavy enough weights available to you to where you can't, you know, get enough motor unit recruitment when you get to those eight to 10 reps, you can get even higher. So don't think that when you're programming, it has to just be that old school formula, three to five sets, eight to 12, um, three to five sets, eight to 12 reps at like 60 to 75% of your one rep max. When it comes to talking about that, going a little bit into the sets and reps, awesome. What's kind of like the general recommendation like is it just you can do sets to inf or reps and sets to infinity or like is there kind of like a, a cutoff where we stop seeing uh returns i would say in general um 
starting around five reps all the way up to 25, 30 is a good cutoff. And I know that's, that's basically how they do things over at Renaissance Periodization. I think the logic behind that starting at five is because um, they don't go all the way to starting with one, one rep just because the load is going to be so great. Um, doing a one rep max is going to accumulate a lot of fatigue which is going to prevent you from being able to accumulate a lot of volume and that volume to, to grow. If that makes Absolutely. sense. No, hundred percent. And imagine trying to do like 20 sets of one, right. <laughs> you know, maybe the, the stimulus, the motor unit recruitment is very high, but it's not a good way to efficiently get in as much volume. Right. Cause it's, that's just going to fry your nervous system and it's going to, it's basically just going to, just going to kill you. Right. So, and on the other side, the is it, too. I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry, you can go ahead. I was just going to talk about the, the higher reps, but that's what I was going to say. So is it on the other side with the higher reps? Is it start getting into more endurance territory? Is that why you don't recommend going too high? I would say so. I would say that um, it's mostly just going to like reps beyond 30 is going to um, activate your slower twitch fibers, which are not the most um, prone to muscle growth. The ones that are going to be, um, to have the ability to grow the most are going to be the, your fast twitch fibers. Awesome. So we got volumes, a key component. Yeah. We got a decent understanding of sets and reps five to 20, 25, right. And training to or near failure. When we say training to or near failure, what does that look like from a programming standpoint? Like RPE wise, percentage wise, what, what can that look like? So, um, I always teach, um, what's called relative intensity, what we're talking about right now in terms of reps and reserve, just because it's easier to conceptualize as opposed to RPE. Mm-hmm. So reps in the reserve is basically um, after you do a set, how many more um, reps can you perform with good technique um, to basically to failure? So for example, if I'm doing a, a set of bench press and I'm doing hundred pounds, I do 10 reps. And then that next set, um, let's say I do an AMRAP, as many reps as possible. I use the same weight, 100 pounds, and then I, I get 13 reps. And then after that, I just get pinned under, under the bar. No more. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that, that first set, that wouldn't mean that I had three more reps in reserve just because that second set, I hit 13. Right. Gotcha. And then Great. translated over to like RPE, that would be RPE 7. Correct. And then, so as, now does it... I think when, when I remember first learning about hypertrophy and motor unit recruitment, I always thought that the relative intensity, whether it be reps and reserve, RPE or percentage one or max had to be relatively high. But if you're doing sets or you're doing sets of 20 to 25, your relative intensity is going to be on the lighter side, right? Mm-hmm. What could like, what is like kind of the lower cutoff for intensity in terms of percentage or, or RIR, whatever it may be? So I would say that um, it's around four to five, four to five, I, I believe. Um, this is a tricky topic just because obviously there's, there's more research coming out, but yeah. um, they, recently, they recently found that, um, I don't know the specific study, but they say that beginners have a hard time estimating relative intensity. And obviously mm-hmm. this just comes from like lack of experience. But um, I do remember there's, there, there was a study that, was like um, like untrained individuals were taking sets of like their 10 rep max. And then the researchers had them go all the way to failure. 
So basically, um, like that first set, they may have gotten 10, but then that the, all the way to failure, they got 16. So they were training around like <laughs> seven reps in reserve, right? Yep. I would say it's not a super important um, thing to take into account for beginners, just because obviously if they're brand new to the gym, any stimulus is going to be more than none, right? So they're going to grow regardless. They're going Absolutely. to grow regardless. Absolutely. And then another key factor. So we talked a little bit about intensity. We talked a little bit about motor unit recruitment and then volume is kind of that, that key factor. What about frequency in terms of like how much people train? Like we always hear like, this is the best split. That's the best split. You got to train this many times per week. What do we, what do we say about that? Right. Well, so for number one, um, the best split is going to fit your schedule, but in terms of like optimal hypertrophy, I would say um, hitting each muscle group at least twice a week if not more, would be more optimal. Um, and it just makes sense. Let's say you were doing a um, two-day-a-week workout and you're doing full body both days and you want to get the most muscle gain as possible, right? Um, you would have to be, you would have to um, equate for volume over that whole week as if you're doing maybe like a five or six-day split. So you would have to pack all that volume into those two days, right? Right. And Example, if you're doing um, leg day and you're doing like five sets of 10 squats, five sets of 10 leg press, like five sets of 10 lunges, <laughs> you're going to be dead. And those sets, those sets in themselves are going to be reduced in quality in terms of like how, how stimulative they're going to be for hypertrophy. So it makes sense. It makes sense from that perspective to, to be training more often. Absolutely. I just finished my overreaching week and I did have five sets of eight on back squat and, uh, and then four sets of 10 on leg press. And it just, you're looking at the program and you're like, Oh my God, what am I doing? But that's how overreaching week is sometimes, man. <laughs> awesome. And then in terms of, so frequency, what, so when you train or let's just do this from like a personal versus a client standpoint, right? So Personally, when you train for hypertrophy, what do you find works best with your schedule? Do you do like a five-day split, a six-day split? And what, what do those splits kind of look like so people can get some ideas of how they can potentially break up their own training? So I personally train six days a week, and I just do um, push-pull legs. And you can reorganize um, that order based on like your, your preference or like what you want to prioritize earlier in the week. Um, I would say that obviously push pull legs, it's going to be six days a week exclusive. So you can't really, there's no right. really wiggle room with that. Um, there are more advanced splits that you could do. Let's say like you could do full body um, five, six days a week as well. And um, on those different, different days, um, you can prioritize different like muscle groups while still doing full body. So you're able to recover. Absolutely. And like you said, it all just goes into, how many days can the client train, right? Like there's no necessarily perfect splits. The one like, okay, well, if my client only has three days available, maybe I need to do an upper lower full body or I need to do, maybe they're only ready to do one time a week. So I do a, you know, upper body, lower body, and then maybe a cardio accessory day for general health, right? It's all going to depend on what they have available to them. And of course their training status, because if they're new, we're not going to give them five sets of 10 uh, and train each muscle group three to four times a week, right? So a lot of variables go into play there. Another big topic with hypertrophy, unless did I miss anything from just starting with basic program design that you want to hit on? Um, let's see. 
So I think we talked about most of the stuff that are kind of just the basic definitions of parameters, right? I think we hit everything right there. Awesome. So next, uh, I guess you could say a controversial topic or more so just people aren't exactly sure what the answer is, is protein, right? So in terms of intake of protein, when people are training for hypertrophy, what's a good general recommendation? I know we're not registered dietitians, but just kind of the, you know, short and to the point, what are we looking for protein wise? Yeah, throw that disclaimer on here so we don't get sued. <laughs> so from um, our NIH calculator, I believe it, um, they recommend like 1.6 to 3.4 grams per kilogram for body weight. And in terms of, um, I guess our freedom units, that is That's 0. Right. 0. 0.8 to 1.5 grams per pound of body weight. Gotcha. Yeah. For my metric folk out there, but no, then that's not, that's not a crazy amount. Right. So like the typical thing we used to hear is like one gram per pound body weight. Right. So I'm 180 pounds, roughly eight, one gram of protein per pound body weight. I should be in the ballpark. Do you find that this is, do you find that this thing to focus on is important for people who are just getting into resistance training and looking to, for hypertrophy? Or would you say this is more so something that you would layer on later? I would say that, um, I would say at the very beginning, um, it won't be something too important to focus on, but as you start to start to progress in your training age, maybe like you've been training for like a month, if you're not seeing the progress that you'd like to see two months, three months, then this is something that you definitely need to take a look at. Absolutely. Cause, and that's a big thing people, you know, I always want to harp on is that training the, the purpose of training or at least hypertrophy training, right. Is we are causing micro trauma essentially to our muscle fibers, right. We're causing damage. And then the goal is to elicit a, you know, an anabolic repair process. So that way our body can adapt adequately and then hopefully get the response we want. If we don't get the proper nutrition after our training, all that training is going to go, you know, down the drain, right. Cause we're not able to supply our body with the ability to repair and that kind of goes into uh, another talking point, which is sleep, right? That's another big factor. So in terms of recovery, so we're giving out like kind of a sleep recommendation. What, what would you say to that? So before we go on to the sleep, I just wanted to talk a little bit more about the, the protein intake. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That 0.8 to 1.5 grams per pound body weight, that's a very general recommendation. Obviously, there's going to be some, some people that are outliers that wouldn't fall into that. Of course. Um, if we have an obese client, right. If they're like 320 pounds, they don't need 320 pounds or 320 grams of, that's just way too much. That's a good point. (laughs) So, um, I would say there, there is an aspect, um, of that, that does take into account one's lean body mass. Obviously the higher amount of lean body mass you have, um, the more it's going to take on your end to maintain or even build more. And, um, it's a, it's a very interesting, interesting field just because the research surrounding that area is always changing. Right. And that's a good point because right. Like if let's say we have two people that both weigh 180 pounds, my body fat percentage and skeletal muscle mass is going to be much different than someone else's. So would that affect the amount of relative protein that I need? So that's a, that is an interesting thing to consider. Oh, and I also, that's one other thing I forgot to mention, because this is always another thing with protein too, before we get to sleep. I know I'm backtracking, but this is important, right? The anabolic window we always hear, right? 
people always say, oh, well, you know, after workout, especially resistance training, immediately you got to just chug that shake. Like the very second you're doing your last set of cable curls, when that plate hits the ground, that shake needs to be just downed, right? What, what do we say about, you know, the anabolic window or recovery from a, from a protein consumption standpoint? So the research says that it's basically a myth, right? As long as you're getting in adequate protein in throughout the day. And I would say that if you want it to be safe, um, maybe within like three hours after your workout, getting in some food, I would say you, you're, you're good to go there. Which I say is pretty typical. I, the only exception I might see that is if for our late gym goers, they might, you know, work out at like 10 or 11 at night, and then you may not be having dinner after that. But with that, you could just down a shake or, you know, maybe some Greek yogurt or something that works well with your stomach before you go to bed. So I wouldn't worry too much about having to get your protein in the second your workout is done. Um, and then in terms of muscle protein synthesis, I know one other area that I think is really cool that we both agreed to focus on is leucine. So can you kind of just briefly touch on what leucine is? Yeah. So it is an essential amino acid, um, one of the nine, I believe. And it is basically the trigger for, for muscle protein synthesis, right? And I wouldn't say it is um, muscle protein synthesis isn't sort of like a, a light switch where either it's on or off. It's more so like um, a light switch that has a dimmer, right? Mm. It can turn that dimmer up brighter or it can be turned down. I like that. That's a good way to put it. And the recommendation I've heard is roughly getting three to four grams. Is that that's per meal, right? Would be the ideal way to do it. Yes. Gotcha. Gotcha. Very, very good. So yeah, protein, really important, may vary slightly depending on lean body mass, but you can use your body weight as a general rule of thumb. Uh, and then of course, you know, you don't have to worry too much about the timing of the protein or the meals, just making sure you get enough in throughout the day to help support yourself. Um, going back to sleep. So Again, this is a recovery process. We're trying to stimulate an anabolic response to help us recover. So what is kind of a good recommendation for sleep? I would say, just like the doctors say, like seven to eight hours, seven to nine hours, and you'd be good to go there. Um, if you don't hit those seven to nine hours a night, you can throw in naps if you have the time. But just the ability to, to take a nap just puts my mind at ease. Cause it's hard, man. Sometimes you can't get those seven, eight hours, man. And you need those naps. <laughs> very, very good. So yeah, that one short speed to the point, right? Make sure you're getting your sleep, make sure you're getting proper protein. In. So that way you can reap the benefits of your training, right? Cause when you're in the gym, you're breaking the muscle down and the hope is to recover afterwards. And then in terms of rest intervals, kind of another training parameter, what, what, how do you generally program rest when you're writing a program for hypertrophy? So I would say as a general rule of thumb for all of your exercises, um, around three, three or so minutes as just baseline. Um, if you need more, obviously you can take more. Um, I know that, uh, the, the principles of hypertrophy book, they go super in depth with this. Um, and, I can just talk about a few of those. Yeah, absolutely. They touch upon. So you want to rest long enough so that your, uh, your main muscle that's working during the exercise is recovered. You're ready to go again, as well as the, the synergists. So basically if you're doing like a bench press, you feel like your chest is ready to go again. Your triceps are ready to go. 
your your front dough's not fried. You're good to go there. In terms of um, your your cardiorespiratory system, you just want to make sure that your heart rate's not jumping out of your chest and you're still pant or panting for air, right? Right. That your heart recovered to the point where you can go again. And then the last one they touch on is basically like um, like your central nervous system, like from a psychological standpoint, like are you ready to to go for another another hard set? And then if you can check those three boxes in, you're, you're pretty much good to go. I like that last one. I haven't really considered that, right? Because when you are training to or near failure for multiple sets, you got to be ready psychologically, man. You got to be prepped because if you're really doing it, like it is grueling to do like a set of 10 bench press, you know, one rep in reserve, no reps in reserve. And to do that for four sets plus, you got to be ready to do that. This was also rest interval was one of those things that, because basically the gist of what I'm hearing Austin is there isn't necessarily, you have to take this specific rest period. It's more so when the individual is ready to be able to complete the session and achieve adequate volume that was prescribed. And also just making sure that, you know, they're ready to get the task done. Um, and what works with their schedule, right? Like if you have two hours to kill at the gym and you need to take longer rest, that's fine. If you only have an hour and you're on the clock, you need to get going. You might have to take shorter rest intervals. This is like one of those areas in program design that I feel like refuses to go away. Whenever you read like a program design textbook is that hypertrophy always has that, uh, what is it like 45 to 90 second window? Like you have to be within this, this very specific window of rest interval. Otherwise you don't reap the benefits of the adaptation. And I learned this in Dr. Zordo's class with my professors uh, back in undergrad is that the reasoning behind that was twofold. One was the time efficiency standpoint. Makes sense, right? You got an hour in the gym, you're doing, you know, eight to 10 exercises, taking a shorter rest interval makes sense. So you can get everything done. I can get on board with that. The second reason was they've done studies with hormone levels. And it just so happened that from a physiological standpoint, when you took shorter rest intervals, right? Like when we learned in X-Phys, shorter rest intervals, certain hormones are more elevated. Things like, you know, lactic acid, lactate, uh, testosterone, growth hormone, um, IGF-1, certain hormones are going to be elevated that we typically see as a response of growth or hypertrophy, right? We think testosterone, the first thing you think is, oh, I want that elevated when I'm doing my sets because if it's elevated in my blood, that must mean I'm getting a better hypertrophy response, right? Eh, not so simple. Because um, I hope I don't butcher this, but if I remember correctly, when you take short rest intervals, I believe it was lactate or lactic acid, I believe one of the two, when those are high in the bloodstream, which occurs when you take short rest intervals, the receptors for testosterone are higher, meaning they have a higher affinity to be absorbed and show in the bloodstream. So it's kind of a false marker, right? You have this acute spike in testosterone, which makes it seem like when you do a blood test, like, oh my God, short rest interval, spike in testosterone. The problem is it's only done acutely because of these physiological changes. What we don't see is that over time, those acute spikes have much of an impact. So what does matter is that you are able to get adequate rest and then you can actually complete the sets because here's an example I always like to give, right? Austin, I'm writing a program for you. You got four sets of 10 on back squat at, let's say, you know, one to two reps left in the tank. And I'm giving you a 60 second rest period. 
How's that? How's that going to, with a mask on too? There you go. How's that going to go? Are you going to so, hit every, are you going to hit every single set? <laughs> most likely not. Most likely not. If, right. if I were to, then I would most likely have to incorporate lighter back off sets just because there's no way you'll, you'll be able to match that first, first set, which is a minute of rest. Absolutely. And then because let's say you lower the load substantially to accomplish that, to fit in that rest interval, that makes your volume go down. So it, it makes more sense to me if you have the time to do so to kind of exaggerate your rest periods and then complete the prescribed volume. Is that kind of how you approach programming as well? Yeah. And I just wanted to add, um, you made a really interesting point. I did not know about the, the whole um, lactic acid. And- I believe that's it. Someone if quote me on that if, if, if I'm saying the wrong thing. So I apologize if I do, but I'm pretty sure yeah. that's it. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I was reading into the hypertrophy book that I mentioned and um, they do mention that sort of like potentially another way for muscle growth to occur is the accumulation of metabolites like lactic lactic acid. So it's just a byproduct of anaerobic metabolism. And basically that's just the energy pathway that our body is going to use to do resistance training exercise just because it's not prolonged. So we're not able to use oxygen to feel those, um, pathways and where's I going with this so basically um, basically the accumulation of lactate as well as other byproducts such as like hydrogen ions which causes Mm -hmm. um, the lowering of pH in your blood all these factors can contribute to to um, activating pathways that lead to muscle hypertrophy if that makes sense I say, yeah, that makes perfect sense. So it, it does make sense um, from a programming standpoint. If you wanted to incorporate what they call like metabolite techniques to um, accumulate these metabolites to trigger muscle growth on top of um, your regular regular straight sets, where called like if you did like three sets of 10 or whatever. Right. So it's, it's just another technique. Gotcha. Would a metabolite set, would that be like something like an AMRAP or like a cluster set? So there's a, there's a lot of different things that can fall under that. Those that you mentioned do as well as like supersets, um, drop sets, Meyer reps, that kind of gotcha. thing. A lot of different things. Meyer reps. No, that's a, that's a skip for me for like rest pause. Rest <laughs> yeah. pause. Absolutely. Very, very cool. So we got the rest interval thing taken care of. What about specificity of training when you're writing programs? How does that kind of fit into the hypertrophy story? So you basically um, are going to do like a, a needs analysis with, with yourself or your client. Like um, if someone was doing a, like if they're a competitive bodybuilder, they could get feedback from the judges and um, they would list out, Oh, what needs improvement or like that sort of thing. So then you can take that and then think about how you're going to, you're going to plan your training to grow those specific components. If someone says, Oh, I just want to grow everything then obviously you can um, equate volume pretty much equally across the board. Absolutely. And this is, I like this point that you mentioned in our notes is that while yes, you do of course want to, the goal of hypertrophy is resistance training, right? You also still want to make sure that you're hitting those basic guidelines for cardiovascular health, right? Because we want to make sure we're taking care of our heart, we're taking care of our lungs. We want to make sure that we're still getting those recommendations in as well. But you're right. And, and kind of on that, I think too, like a debate that always goes on is, you know, 
is one, one exercise better than the other for hypertrophy. So like when you're thinking of exercise selection, how do you kind of go about that? So this, this could be like a, a topic on its own. <laughs> Essentially what we want to do is we want to pick the exercises that um, are the most stimul stimulative in nature for that person, as well as the least fatiguing. Right. So for everyone, it's going to be different for, for how exercises feel to them. Right. Um, so for example, um, let's say for me, um, I personally don't do bent over rows. Um, I'd rather opt for like a machine or like, um, like a, like a hammer strength mm -hmm. type, of, type of equipment, just because doing bent over rows, you're, you're in that, um, bent over position and it can be pretty taxing as well as, um, on your nervous system and your erectors, just because you have to maintain, maintain that position. So for me, that exercise could become to a point where I don't really feel it in my back at all. My, my lats, my rhomboids, my mid trap, that kind of thing, where it just turns into an exercise um, where I'm basically just trying to hold myself in that position. If that makes right. Sense. Well, Austin, I'll put your mind at ease, man. I actually have bent over rows today in my, I do a very similar split. I do a um, upper body push, or I guess I should say I do chest, triceps, calves. I do back, biceps and I do legs and shoulders, excluding calves. Um, today is my second back and bicep day. I am doing bent over rows. I'm doing them for you. So you don't have to worry about doing them. I'll, I'll handle all those for you, but, um, you can stay with those deep Smith machine squats with however much stupid amount of weight you got on there, man. Uh, but yeah, no, it's funny you say that because of course there's the basic exercise we go to, right? The bread and butter, the, the big three are always going to be solid with building muscle deadlift little debate there. Right. But I'd say your squat variations, your bench hip thrust or some kind of hinge pattern, your rows. Right. I find I love them because I feel them a lot and they're, they stimulate, you know, my quads and my glutes quite a bit, but man, high bar back squat. My heart rate goes up to like 130, 140 after every set of eight. It's, it's ridiculous, but I love them. Now I have been getting into the deep squat as, as hard as they are because the amount of range of motion I got to do the deep Smith machine squat, man, that's a game changer. Oh guy. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Good stuff. So yeah. So finding out what works well for the individual, right? It's like, Hey, you know, you seem to respond well to this exercise or this one, you can feel yourself working, but you don't feel like after every set, you just ran a marathon, right? So what's going to work for them. So now, okay. So, oh, sorry. Go ahead, bud. I know that um, um, one of the reasons I choose to do a lot of exercises in the Smith machine, as opposed to like a free weight variation, is just because free weights are going to be more fatiguing in nature, just because whenever you're doing those exercises, obviously you have to like stabilize the weight, as well as try to use the targeted muscles. With the Smith, Smith machine, it takes that stabilization um, factor out of the equation. Um, also, my brain just kind of. Nah, you're good, but no, I, I was going to say that, like, which makes sense for you, right? Because you primarily train strictly hypertrophy, right? That's kind of like your main goal. I also have been doing hypertrophy for a decent amount of time, but a subset goal for me is athletic performance because I just like to be 
as athletic as possible as demonstration for athletes I coach. And I also like to play basketball recreationally. So while I do train hypertrophy, I still keep in some lifts and some variations that might have a strength and conditioning component. So I do use a little bit less machines for some things. Like I still love barbell bench. I still love high bar back squat. I love bent over row. I do deadlift from time to time, barbell overhead press. So I still keep in those freeway and barbell exercises. But if I was doing just pure hypertrophy, I wanted to get as yoked as possible. Definitely would consider using more of the Smith machine, the hammer strength. I love hammer strength and some of the machines as well. I remembered what I wanted to say. Um, there we for go. Any of, the, any of the power lifters out there, um, I know that they know that if you if you potentially like miss groove a rep on let's say bench press, that couldn't that could make or break your set right mm-hmm. there. I know I've seen I've watched some um, IPF powerlifting where the lifter um, they got called for a, like a proper unrack that kind of thing, and they had to rack the weight and then they only could rest maybe like 30 seconds to a minute and they had to go and unrack the weight again and they actually missed the lift. So it's definitely, um, that type of thing can definitely play a factor into like which exercises I'm going to choose. Obviously if I'm doing a Smith machine bench, I don't have to unrack the bar. I just unhook it. Absolutely. I want to go on a, a quick tangent before we get into block programming. Cause this is something that I've been, I've been catching up on some hypertrophy podcasts and this is one that I hear, and I want to get your opinion if you heard anything about this, the relationship between hypertrophy and strength. Mm-hmm. So historically, like reading my CSES uh, textbook, you know, basic physiology, we know that they're programmed different. They're different physiological responses, right? Hypertrophy, like we've been saying, increase size, surface area of the skeletal muscle, the actual unit itself, the contractile unit itself, right? That's one. Strength is more of a neurological adaptation where we're changing the ability to produce force, right? However, in general, the understanding is that a larger muscle with more surface area, with more contractile space can then has the ability to produce more force. Is that kind of still up? For, is that up for debate or is that still kind of the, the school of thought that you've been seeing, Austin? I believe they're, they're shifting more towards that mindset where obviously bigger muscles are stronger muscles and stronger muscles can lead to bigger muscles. So they kind of, they kind of go back and forth with that. And um, it's, it's funny that you, you bring this up just because I was thinking about, about this like a few hours earlier. Like I remember reading um, like ACSM texts where mm-hmm. they talk about, they talk about like strength, hypertrophy and endurance, like on this spectrum. Right. Yeah. However, it's, I begin to quickly realize that, um, strength and endurance are more so like performance aspects right as yes. opposed to hypertrophy, which is like a physiological like adaptation so instead of putting it right in the middle it should be kind of like along the bottom just because you will build hypertrophy you will build your muscle like throughout the Absolutely. entire thing i want to say we had that conversation before where it is almost kind of like you are it's a physiological goal as opposed to a performance-based goal yeah. that's a really good way to think about it where it's like not on not on the continuum of like you go endurance, hypertrophy, strength. That's not necessarily how it goes. It's kind of a separate thing. So I really, I really like that. That's a good point. They may have to change those, the texts and those books and update that. Might be a shift. Who knows? We'll see. <laughs> In terms of, so now going back to programming, right? So, okay. So we got, you know, what hypertrophy is. We got some general training parameters and how we can do so. 
when you're structuring a program, what's kind of like the general outline you go from a block perspective? I would say let's, we can go ahead and like talk about the terms real quick. Okay. Um, so first and foremost, we have what's called a microcycle, And that's basically just going to be um, one week of training or like the shortest cycle of training in which that you get all your sessions in as well as your rest days. So typically it's just one week. So that's a microcycle. A mesocycle is going to be a collection of those microcycles, right? So th these could be like um, four, six, eight weeks in nature. And a mesocycle is um, distinguished with an accumulation phase where you are increasing in volume over time, as well as a, de a deload phase where like a week you, um, you back off considerably. Absolutely. So, okay. So generally training block that you would prescribe for either yourself or a client anywhere from that four to eight week range is what you would do. How do you determine for the individual if they should have a shorter training block or a longer training block? Is it experience? Is it preference? How do you go about that? So it's, I would say it's a little bit of both and ultimately, ultimately it does come down to some sort of like experimentation. I do find that um, beginners would probably benefit from a longer mesocycle, maybe like six to eight weeks, just because um, their bodies are so new to training that their exercise technique isn't going to be obviously like perfect at the start. So that longer, that longer period of time allows their, their, um, them to milk out those, those adaptations. Um, for people that have been training longer and have larger, um, muscles that produce a lot of force, they may only get away with like four five, six weeks, just because, um, as they're increasing in volume, um, obviously, and as they're increasing in volume, as well as dropping those reps in reserve, their muscles are going to get torn up pretty quickly. They're going to get, quickly, so now when you, when you go about that programming, so for example, this is really cool because we both had a very similar philosophy in how we program. So let me know if this still resonates with you. Right. So I like to do the four week block with a one week deload when I'm doing pure hypertrophy, right? That's what works best for me. And most of the times when I work with clients, the four week tends to work relatively well. And it fits sometimes well within a month as well. So it's like easy for people to conceptualize, right? So I'll have my base level of exercise that I know I want to do, make sure I'm hitting each major muscle group at least twice, like we talked about. And then each week I'm ramping up volume over time. That can be something like, you know, I start with three sets of eight. Usually what I'll do is I'll increase the reps the first week. And then the second week I will change the sets. And then maybe the final week I'll change the sets again. It really just depends on, how the first week goes, how taxing it feels and what I want to accomplish from week to week. Um, but essentially, like you said, increasing volume over time, intensity is relatively the same. That's why I like using subjective like RP or RIR because, Hey, if I'm having a great day, Oh, I'm jacking the weight up. I'm making sure that I'm going to failure that I'm getting stimulation but versus if I'm having a crappy day and you know, 135 feels like my max for the day on bench press. I'm going to make sure that I'm appropriately loading as such. Then I get to that final week, which we call, you know, the overreaching week, you know, balls to the walls, right? Hell or, week, yeah. you know, hell week. Yep. That's right. Hell week. Yep. I'm, I'm finishing it up right now. So <laughs> I know how it feels, man. Freaking your volume is as high as it can be to where you're not exceeding 
your ability to recover, right? You're just at that door of like, man, I'm really pushing myself. I don't know if I'm going to, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this week, but of course you do. And of course you're able to recover when it comes to that overreaching week. What, what's kind of the purpose of doing that? Why are we trying to get volume so high through this block? Right. So I think going back to um, a little bit about overreaching itself. So from like a, a, a sports science perspective, um, Ideally, what happens is whenever you surpass a point where you cannot recover from um, and then you deload, essentially this idea of super compensation occurs where you you basically gain a lot more than as if you had not done that. Um, and I would say it would be okay to surpass, um, surpass like those volumes in an overreaching week just because you're not going to be training that long to where it, the, the fatigue is going to linger around and cause right. you to have effects of overtraining. It's just for one week. So surpassing that wouldn't be a big deal. Um, I've known for like myself, I've done quite a, quite several um, blocks now where I overreach and maybe towards that middle or like later at the end of the week, my performance drops off considerably, but I'm still pushing it mm-hmm. and, that's something to just look out for. You don't have to necessarily hit that point, but it's something that, okay. Like if you, if you look at the numbers like, wow, I'm like, I'm not doing as, as much as I was, it was last week. That's really an, a, a good indicator that you're overreaching. Absolutely. Absolutely. So and that, that's a good point to, that's a good thing to talk about. Right. Cause that I think, especially with people who are new to lifting, they might view that excessive fatigue as, as scary or concerning, right? They're like, Oh my God, like, and my performance is going down a little bit. I'm a little bit more sore than normal. Like maybe this is bad. Maybe I'm going to get injured, but if done in an appropriate manner, and like you said, it's for a short period of time followed by an appropriate deload, they can hopefully reap the benefits of accumulating that mass amount of stress. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Excellent. And then deload. So I know this term gets thrown around quite a bit. Right. And then people just say like, well, you should, you have to do a deload at this time or the, definition of a deload is kind of different when you're programming a deload for hypertrophy what does that look like exactly yeah there there are a million different ways to deload you could just take the entire week off and just stay at home and be lazy that's one (laughs) um you could also ideally okay so ideally with a deload what you want to do is you want to um drop the volume to an amount that where you are not training to seek adaptations anymore right you're just training below maintenance mm-hmm. so usually this comes out to be like half the volume you're doing so um let's say like you're doing four sets of bench on um during the overreaching phase what you could do is just drop that to two sets gotcha okay so half the volume of the overreaching week right gotcha gotcha and then i know like renaissance periodization they talk about um they, they talk about how much, how much weight you should actually, how much load you should do. So like the first half of the week, um, you can do like the same way or like 90% of the weight you did that overreaching week. And the idea behind this is that we want to, um, like maintain, maintain what we just did. Right. Right. And then that second half of the week, you can drop the, the load 50% as well. Which makes sense, right? Because we're still providing adequate stimulation of the muscle through motor unit recruitment, 
we're just severely cutting down the volume so that way our body can recover from the damage that was drop, drop all that. Exactly. Absolutely. I love it. I love it. So that's a good recommendation, right? So if you're programming, whether for yourself, or for a client, you're doing that four, six, eight week block, whatever you're doing, you're gradually ramping up volume over time. And that could be done in a number of ways. If you're doing an eight week block, it might be increasing a few reps every week. If you're doing a shorter block, it might be just adding sets. Or if you're more experienced and you want to do some of those, you know, um, specific types of overload, which is you're doing a AMRAP on the overreaching week on your last exercise or whatever it may be, you're finding ways to gradually increase volume over time, get to that point where you are at, or like just exceed where you're able to recover from. You take a week, drop volume and intensity a little bit, and then you ramp it back up. When you start on a new block, Austin, or let's, let's talk about this first, right? Deload. This is an important thing too. With a deload, what do you do exercise selection wise or, or in terms of how you program? Do you tend to stay with the same exercises? Do you use this opportunity to bring in new exercises that you're thinking about for another block or how does that go exercise selection wise? Yeah, so this is a, another thing where there's really no right or wrong way to go about it. Um, you can stick with the same exercises that you just did, that overreaching phase. I would say one, one thing to look out for with that is that if you have um, sort of like lingering injuries or maybe like your connective tissue feels kind of iffy from that week of hard training. If you do um, stick with those same exercises, you could potentially cause more stress on those areas. Um, I'm, I've definitely, I've experienced it that, with that myself. The thing with choosing new exercises though, is that they could be um, such like a novel stimulus that it may cause you to, um, achieve adaptations from that. So your, your deload week may turn into like an accumulation week. Right. New exercises. Because so you're having such a new stimulus, right? <laughs> you've got to be super careful with that. And one thing I would say, like, it's a safe bet to do is just make sure that you're staying pretty far away from failure. So maybe like Absolutely. five, five reps in reserve. Good to go. That's typically what I do. I'll, I mean, most of the, you know, there's only so many lifts you can do, right? And so many variations. So usually the, during my overreaching week, I use that as a time to start structuring my next block. So, you know, because it gets me excited. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm killing myself on this week. And now I can start looking forward and getting excited to what I'm doing next. Right. Cause I'm done with these exercises for a minute. And then I'll use the deload week. Like I also said, cut volume down quite a bit intensity, relatively the same for the most part. And then I'll use that deload to kind of play with what exercises I might want to do. It's a good way to experiment. So for example, if I'm doing, you know, barbell bench press for one block and I'm like, man, I really want to incorporate a close grip dumbbell bench. I, I really want to try that in my block. I can do that in my deload week. And then I can see that I like that, that I feel like I was getting a good stimulus, even though it was kind of that deload recovery period. And do I want to actually move forward with that? And it kind of takes the mundane routine that you might get, right? Because that can happen, right? You're doing the same thing for at least a month. Some people, if you do the eight week block, it's two months that can get very repetitive for some people. And it's a good way to kind of just spice things up a little bit. So definitely a good opportunity to try that. Okay. Awesome. So I run the, I run the block. I'm building up volume. I'm overreaching. My quads are on fire. I recover. I do whatever I want to do with my deload, make sure volume is cut down. How do I get into the next block? Is it kind of the same process of just this wave of up, deload, down, and then swap exercise? Or how does that work? Yep. So pretty much it's just like a rinse and repeat, repeat process, right? You're going to, 
you're going to start out with loads that are going to be um, around like three to four reps in reserve that first that first week or two. And then as you go on, add sets, add reps, maybe add weight. And then as you start to do that, your, your reps in reserve are just going to continue to drop over the weeks. And then you just overreach and then deload again, rinse and repeat. Absolutely. And th- this is one that I sometimes go back and forth on because as I mentioned, you know, there's only so many ways you can do a bench press, right? Especially if we're focusing on virtue, you want to maximize the bench press. What are your views on, you know, we talked about the repeat about effect, right? What are your views on in terms of how much change you make in your program, right? For example, if you're doing a leg day, do you swap out every exercise for a different variation? Do you keep a couple staples or how do you go about programming that way? I mean, I think like in a general, with a general rule of thumb, um, if it's not broken, don't fix it. So if it's working, right. You're still able to, like progress and weight. If you're progressing significantly, like you're adding a lot of weight, just keep doing it. Um, if you're not having any like lingering problems with like, maybe like your, your elbows, your hips or whatever, just keep doing it. Absolutely. And I like that you mentioned the injury part, cause you know, me, the pain and injury side of things I love to talk about. I more often find with the pain and injury side, yes, there's overuse things to consider like, you know, tendinopathies and things like that. The thing I usually find is it's a, it's more of a program design issue than an exercise issue, meaning you did too much volume too quick, or you were just, you know, the amount of volume you accumulated in a block was absurd. And then your elbows start bugging you. You get a little shoulder tweak, right? It may not be the exercise per se that needs to switch, but maybe you might have to lower the, the amount or at least make it more gradual the way you increase volume over time might be a consideration. Yeah. Yeah. There's, and, there's a million different ways to, to progress. So absolutely so playing around, um, finding which one works and just going from there. Absolutely. And I like that if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. <laughs> Another big one is range of motion. Right. So Austin, I need you to confirm for people do partial reps work. Can I just do 21s with the easy bar bicep curl and I'm good to go? Or what's the, what's the story with that? So my, my answer to that is it depends. It depends on the situation. It depends on the context. Austin, I'm tired of these middle of the road answers. I'm tired of this gray. I need definites. Come on, man. (laughs) I mean, in general, I would say general rule of thumb, full range of motion is going to be your best bet. Obviously, with those things you mentioned, like um, like partial reps and like 21s, you're doing partial range of motion. I would consider those to be more so like metabolite techniques where um, like you're doing 21 reps, you're really trying to get that burn in your biceps. I wouldn't consider that to be um, what we call like straight sets, which is going to be the majority of your training. And I know I mentioned that earlier. No, absolutely. And would you say that, when it comes to a full range of motion, is that because you're able to stimulate the muscle? I guess I almost said through the full range of motion, like repeating myself, is it because you're utilizing the entire muscle or what is kind of the, the reasoning behind why we want the full range of motion as opposed so to when, partial? Yeah. When you take a full, when you take a muscle through its full range of motion, you're going to be activating um, all the motor units that you possibly can. And that's what we want to do, right? We want to activate those motor units to stimulate them to grow. Gotcha. So, if you only do like a bench press and you come halfway down, you're not activating the motor units um, as if you would go all the way down and touch your chest and come back up. So want to get the most bang for your buck, right? Right. Excellent. Now you've kind of, we've kind of talked a little bit about new lifters versus advanced lifters and maybe some of the differences. So 
for maybe people who are new to lifting and want to get into hypertrophy, how do you go about that in terms of getting ready to structure their program? What do, what do you do? So it's a, it's a tricky topic with this one because there's going to be a lot of difference between what I do and what someone that's completely new is going to do. Um, typically with a new lifter, I automatically have them around like three sets of every exercise instead of maybe like one or two, just because they're obviously new to lifting. They don't have much experience with the lifts. They need to focus on establishing good technique. And if they're not practicing the movement enough, they're only doing one set. It's not enough for, for them to um, kind of learn how to, how to use their muscles like that. Absolutely. No, I, I like that because I use it as like a, I almost said a training block. It's a good way to get the skills down, right? So you're taking time to learn form technique. If someone is new to the gym, right? I've had this example before, right? Someone hasn't touched a dumbbell in their life and they're like, I want to be as jacked as possible. I love the motivation. Let's build adherence first, right? So can I get you in the gym consistently twice a week? Can I get you to enjoy training and show up? Can I at least get you to those basic exercise guidelines, right? Two times per week, each major muscle group, and then also getting your cardiovascular exercise in, right? I'm going to start there first before I'm like, all right, we're doing a four-week block and a deload's coming after, so get ready, kid. I'm going to make sure I got down adherence, good technique. It's a good time to learning in the habit of training, and then I can go ahead and focus on hypertrophy-specific later down the line. With advanced lifters, so let's say you have someone or people who have a little bit of training under their belt, do you kind of just do what we discussed, which is find their preferences, find their time schedule, plug and chug and throw them right into a block? Mm -hmm. Yep. Just start low with volume and just increase from there. It's like, I know I mentioned on one of my posts, it's like, it's like how a doctor prescribes you medicine, right? They're going to start with the lowest possible amount and then they're going to increase the doses needed. And then obviously with, with lifters, we want to increase the, the dose of volume. So. Absolutely. Yeah. I know it's funny. I hear the same thing from the barbell medicine crew. It's like personal training. Our job is to prescribe exercise, right? So that's what we're doing. Sometimes you got to up the dose of what you're doing. Very good, man. So yeah, that's about all the talking points. Is there any other things that hypertrophy related or training related related that you wanted to cover that we maybe didn't get to? Um, I guess going back to the last point we talked about with like more so beginners, mm -hmm. um, when it comes to optimal training for hypertrophy, like I said, we want to establish good technique first, right? And that's why we do usually more sets and just you can progress um, progress via like reps instead of more sets. Mm -hmm. So we, once we have good technique down, I think it's really important that we, we learn how to um, train hard. And what that means is like relative intensity. Like we learn how to we learn what three reps in reserve looks like, two reps in reserve, that kind of thing. Just because like I mentioned before, beginners have a hard time doing that. Of course. And um, once you have that down, lastly, focus on um, mind-muscle connection, which is basically mm -hmm. being like in tune with your body, um, being able to perceive feedback from the muscles that you're working. So, um, and there's like, there's like two different ways you can perceive, I guess, like mind-muscle connection. Um, one's going to be related to like tension or like how much force is being produced with the muscle. And then the second one is going to be like that, that burning feeling. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing like a heavy set of bench press, let's say you're doing like six reps, um, that weight's going to feel heavy in your hands. And, um, my muscle connection is going to be, can you feel 
that heavy load in your chest, like with each right. rep. And then um, with the with the burning feeling, that's going to be mostly related to like the accumulation of those metabolites, like we talked about, like lactic acid, hydrogen ions, that kind of thing. So, um, and that will provide that sort of like burning feeling. And as opposed to like how heavy a weight feels, once you do um, a set in like eight, 10, 12, 15 reps, you will start to feel that burn. And um, you need to make sure that you're able to be like, okay, I'm doing lap pull down. I can feel my lats are they're on fire. Like that. <laughs> Absolutely. Would you say two things I want to talk about? First one is when you're working with a new person and you're trying to get them to understand reps and reserve or train to failure, what kind of strategies do you use that maybe young coaches or people who are working with themselves can kind of understand how do they get there? Do you kind of, do you set up like an AMRAP somewhere in the workout? That's of course with, you know, supervision, so that way you can help them if needed, or how do you go about having them understand like, Hey, this is what three reps in reserve actually looks and feels like. Yeah. So I'd say first and foremost, you just want to get down pat with them. Like what the concept is. Once you've got that, um, just start asking them during your training sessions, like after a set, okay, how many more reps could you do? And hopefully you as a trainer um, kind of are able to distinguish um, like three reps in reserve versus like zero reps in reserve. Um, and there's like a lot of different, a lot of different ways you can, you can look at it. One like super general rule of thumb I heard um, is that when you're taking a set right around three to four reps in reserve, that weight will slow down significantly, significantly in your hands. And it'll feel like um, it just got a lot more challenging, just like that. So. No, absolutely. Velocity has a good correlation with, or I've been hearing that velocity has a relative correlation with, in terms of, um, your proximity to failure. So that could be something like you can notice subjectively. It's like, Oh, I'm able to make it fly. And then you hit a rep or two and you're like, Oh, I can't really move this as quickly as I was just a few seconds ago. Maybe I'm getting close to where I want to be. Right. And then your question on, um, like using special techniques, like AMRAPs from my personal experience, I think that's how I learned how to, um, how I learned reps reserve myself was from doing sets like drop sets. And basically all I did was just, I would just take a set pretty damn close to failure, maybe mm -hmm. like one or two reps away. And then I would just drop the weight and just do as many as I could. I yep. wouldn't count at all. I would just try to get that feeling down. And obviously I didn't have a trainer like a few years ago, so I didn't really know. I just kind of, I just kind of like got the feeling of it. And then once I started learning more, that's when I knew like, Oh, that's what I was doing. Right. Absolutely. It may not be appropriate for some beginners. Of course. To, techniques just because obviously <laughs> it's, it's a lot of it's a lot of stimulus they're hard to do and yes it's very stimulative and um they may not want to come back to training with you if you it's very possible to do that you're right so. it definitely depends on the person because i've had people where like i'll take them through like an intro block you know and then maybe at the start of a new block or like the time we get to the end of another one i'll be like all right how many more reps could you have done and they're like yeah, i could have done three it's like let's test it. Let's actually see. I'm going to be right here with you on your bench press. And you said you can only do three more reps after 10. You're going to go and see if you can get past 13 and we're going to see. And then sometimes they're like, Oh wow, I could actually do more than I thought I could. Um, or sometimes they're spot on and it's good to go, but it definitely depends on the person. Like some people who like challenges that are more competitive, they love that. They're like, okay, I said I could get three more. Let's see what I can do. Other times it can be 
a little bit defeating for people. So it's really just understanding your person and what's going to work best for them. And of course, making sure you're not giving them too much volume in the beginning when they're brand new, because then they're going to hate you and never come back. <laughs> and then and I know, um, oh, good. The, uh, the muscle and strength pyramid um, text from Dr. Eric Helms, they talk about how, how you can try to estimate reps and reserve. And I, I can just go ahead and read them off. Yeah, absolutely. So one way you could do it is just record a video of your set and just rate your reps and reserve. After that set, go back and watch. This is obviously helpful if you're training alone, you don't have a trainer with you. Mm -hmm. One thing, another thing they talk about is that you could try um, a short block of like maybe three to six weeks where you're doing pretty low volume training, but you go to failure quite often. Mm. So this is kind of like counterintuitive counter to what you were talking about, just because um, we always say we want to start start at a high reps and reserve. And as the weeks go on, right. we, we drop and go closer to failure. So there's a lot of different, like, I guess, different people are going to have like their different training styles. And this could be something that you do. Um, and like I said, you train low volume and you go to failure quite often. And you just make sure that you have either like a, someone to work out with like a spotter, mm -hmm. like another trainer. And um, you take all those sets of failure to really test, like how much, how much can you push yourself? How much can you do? Absolutely. Do you ever use percentage of one rep max when you're programming? So I personally do not. Um, I think it's something that you can, you can definitely do. Um, and it may be helpful for those people that, don't know how um, how much their body can handle if they do know like an estimated fire right can walk them through all those um, those tests but since I'm more advanced and like I I definitely know like three reps and reserve two reps and reserve for my body I don't really need to but that can be something that you use to kind of gauge their their limits how much they can handle I like I primarily use RIR RP as well because we talked about this before percentage of one rep max changes on a daily basis. So what your max was, and then if you're not constantly updating it, you're using one from six months ago, who the heck knows that's still up to date. The other thing is that I've heard some research where they'll give lifters, I believe they're more so intermediate advanced, but they'll give lifters a percentage of their one rep max, for example, like 80% because they'll have the max out prior within a short period of time. And then a couple of days or a week later, they'll have them actually, you know, see how many times they could do 80%, 75%. Now, if you hear like, for example, bench press 80%, you're thinking, oh, you could get, you know, anywhere from four to maybe eight reps if you're lucky, but there's so much individual variability where some people are hitting 20 plus on a prescribed 80% of what they just maxed out on. So for that reason, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of percentage of one rep max, but I do understand for people who are new to lifting, having like a concrete number from something they've accomplished in the past might just be simpler and less intimidating for them possibly. One other thing I wanted to get your perspective on this, cause this is one that cooks my noodle quite a bit lately. And that is the mind muscle connection thing, right? So from person to person, everyone feels a little bit differently, right? Like we were just discussing, you're like, you know, bent over row. I really don't feel it as much, or it's more taxing in different ways than I want. And then specifically hitting my lats or my traps. For me, it's high bar back squat, gets my heart rate up. I do feel my legs working, but I definitely feel it more so in other exercises. So 
if an exercise does in fact work the muscle group, for example, let's use the back squat, right? You are going into passive knee flexion and active knee extension under load. So your quadriceps are working whether you feel it or not. Would you say that it's more important to have an exercise that's high volume that stimulates a lot of motor units, but you don't feel it? Or would you rather someone do something where they feel it more like, let's say a, you know, a Smith machine, but they can't maybe load it as much. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, to be honest, I, I, I see both sides and like the reasoning behind like, which like this might be better or that might be better. But honestly, I think the best, um, falls somewhere in between those two, to be honest. Right. And I'm not sure of the, the specific research, um, behind like the mind muscle connection. I just know it's out there. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Schoenfeld had made something recently and they talk about like how, how having an internal focus versus external focus led to, um, I get, I think more muscle gain. Mm. So it's definitely something and obviously like the research is always changing but. of course because like the the biomechanics part of me goes like well i'm actively extending under load so the muscles like you know it's it's like the common meme it's like when someone says you know use your glutes but you're extending your hips like of course you're using your glutes even, even if you don't feel it you are using your glutes otherwise you wouldn't be able to stand up and complete the lift but i do also it's like some exercises man it's just like man i like leg extension is the best example for me with quads there is no other exercise that kills my quads that I feel it more than a leg extension. And whether that's a subjective experience that makes me just want to keep doing it, I always include leg extension in my program because I feel like I'm getting more bang for my buck. Very, very good. So kind of the last thing I'll ask you, man, and then we'll kind of put a nice bow on this and wrap it up. How is overall your training going? And then like, what's kind of, you know, next steps for you because you're graduating soon, man. Right. So as far as what do you mean by training, like my workouts or I should have specified. Yes. You're training that you do personally for yourself. So right now, um, I kind of just eased back into training a few weeks ago, just because I had a, I had a surgery done. So just wanted to make sure that that healed up. Um, like right now I am still focusing on, um, growing everything pretty much with a little bit more focus on chest. So that's why I am doing like a, a third, third day where I'm incorporating chest volume. So what I'll do is I'll hit chest Monday, Thursday, and then Saturday, like I did today. Um, as far as like my split goes, like I said, I've just been doing basically push pull legs. And then that last leg day, obviously I do some, some more chest. Um, I've been doing that for, ever since I started lifting. So pretty much like four, four and a half years now. And you don't know Austin. It's, it's, trust me, it's freaking working. Okay. Like this kid is giant. I seen the photo when you were younger, right. On, on the leaner side. So the program is definitely working. Trust me. Yeah. So we're just sticking with and just making sure we're, um, you know, consuming enough calories, eating yes. our body, resting enough. Things just work out like that. Absolutely. And then, so you're graduating soon and then what's kind of, what, what are the hopes for, for what's after that? So right now I'm looking at um, hopefully 
continue continuing full-time as a trainer and I hopefully want to move somewhere warmer than Indiana. Um, I'd say like anywhere is better than here. Nope. <laughs> Nope. I'm just kind of tired of it here. So I'm thinking about moving to Texas. Don't know where yet, but. Awesome. It's okay, man. I'll say it for you. 10 inches of snow is bullshit there. You know, I don't, everyone knows I'm from South Florida. I went to grad school for two years up in Indiana. Holy crap. There's some, when you hearing negative five degrees and actually feeling negative five degrees as you're scraping ice off your windshield at six in the morning, there are two different things. So listen, wherever you end up going, man, wherever warm weather place you stop at, I fully support that decision. Just know that the Sunshine State will always welcome new people. So we'd be happy to have you as well, sir. For sure. For sure. Well, Austin, thank you, man. I really appreciate it. I know this is going to be the first of many conversations that we're going to have because, you know, we talk every now and again about training. And as we mentioned, the world of hypertrophy is changing constantly. And I'm excited for, you know, where life takes you, man. And I know you're going to do great things wherever you go, whether it's helping out with education or being a trainer. So I'm excited for future conversation my man let the people know where they can find you yeah so um my instagram i believe it is austin lee underscore zero six and that's just my personal one um, i don't have like a separate fitness one just because i pretty much bleed this so that's <laughs> all I'm about so i just post everything on there um and you can also find me like i said where i'm, I'm at park west fitness right now it's in west Lafayette in the in the research park training there um, if you want to, if you want to train with me, hit me up, let me know, slide in my DMS. <laughs> work. Absolutely. And for those who want to learn more about me, uh, Instagram at the underscore shift underscore method. Again, we got content basically every day, whether it's inspiration, educational content, um, going over new exercises or things like the podcast here, the podcast will be on YouTube and Spotify. Uh, we're recording this on Saturday. Most likely we'll go up on Monday in the morning. So be on the lookout for that. I'm going to try and make it a weekly thing, depending on availability of guests and my schedule as well. So hopefully something to look forward to, but I won't make any false promises. Uh, you can also head over to theshiftmethod.org, the website. Shirts are still available. Masks are still available. Be sure to cop one yourself if you would like one and want to support the movement. That would be greatly appreciated. Again, theshiftmethod.org for the website and at the underscore shift, underscore method for the Instagram handle. Austin, it was a pleasure, man. Hope you have a wonderful day. Stay warm up there, bro. And you take care, okay? Take care.